This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. For Miriam Chaya Bat which, you know, I speak about it again and again, so you guys I'm sure are familiar with all the, the situation and the story. And also for, uh, and for being the one woman, uh, Leah Ben uh, Raquel. Leah. And the Fuashlema? Yeah. Leah Bat Raquel. Yeah, Fuashlema Leah Bat Raquel. Besok And everybody, everybody who's sick in, in the Jewish world should always, should have a Fuashlema Ben Mehal Amenu. So, um, before we actually begin uh, with with uh, speaking of Yosef's story, I want to start actually with a little story that I read that I found was was very apropos to this topic. There was once a couple, and this couple they were trying to have kids for many many years. They've been trying to have kids. They've been going from specialist to specialist, from rabbi to rabbi, and nothing doing. No kids, not not even no pregnancy, nothing. And uh, eventually they went from, they tried in vitro fertilization, they tried all these uh, uh, these special um, procedures, and <coughs> nothing doing. In fact, the, the doctors told them there's no way that you're going to be able to have a child. So they went, and they said, um, they said, you know what, you know what could you do? And you know, they became down, they became depressed, and uh, eventually they, they figured, listen, if we can't have a child of our own, <coughs> excuse me, let us at least adopt one. We can at least adopt a child. So they made some phone calls, and they found out that there's a certain agency in Israel that has a very long list of Jewish kids that needs a, needs a home. So they thought, awesome, let's go. They traveled, they went out to, uh, um, they went out to Israel, and the day that they landed, they went into this, um, they went into this, or the organization to fill out the paperwork. They realized there's gonna be a ton of paperwork. So they get in there, they're, this family, the name is, uh, Shapiro, this is a true story. So, um, the, the husband, Yosef, he goes inside over there and he starts filling out all the paperwork and you know all the regular paperwork that he's you know he was aware of you know you know like uh, financial stuff ability to live your ability to love yada 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 all the basic stuff and then they asked the very interesting questions they asked him name five things that are your most favorite things the most desirable the you most you love the most in the entire world so you know he's thinking over there and he's like you know I'm a you know I'm a religious Jew and so he thinks you know first number one thing God number two the thing that he loves the most the Torah. Number three, he starts thinking maybe prayer. Number four, after he finishes that, he's like, all right, music, or whatever it is that he ends up putting on those those five things. So he goes and he says that, uh, he goes on to the next page. And the next page says, now what I want you to do is you have to sign that you're willing to give up all those five things that you love and you're going to love this child more than those five things. And he's sitting over there, and he's like, he's like, you know, I can't do that. You know, I mean, I can't. What do you mean, love the? You know, like, I, I'm, God is, is, you know, my whole, my whole being is spirituality. God, Judaism, the Torah, I can't just for, you know, forego all that. So he's, his, you know, his, he's telling this to his wife. His wife, you know, couldn't know what to say. You know, so she, he goes and says, let me speak to the manager. I'm sure he's going to understand. So they go to the manager and say, listen, you know, we're going to love this child unconditionally. You know that. You know, you, you see us. He says, but I can't, I can't write that. You know, I'm going to love this child more than God, more than Torah, more than everything. It's, it's just, it goes against everything that I represent, everything that I've been living with my whole life. So um, the manager says, you know, I understand you. I know what you're talking about. You know, he's this religious guy. He says, but um, <clears throat> just just sign it. No one's going to ask you, you know, no, there's no thought police over here that's going to be like, ah, eh, no being Jewish. No, no, they're not going to ask you. Just sign it and, you know, go back to whatever way you want to be. So, Yosef is going, he says, he says, he says I, I can't do that. I can't, even on paper, I can't put that. How do I put it down that I don't love God? I, I'm going to throw it all away. I, I can't. I physically can't do that. So they're going back and forth and the guy says, listen, just sign your name. No one cares. You know, as long as you sign it, you get the thing. If you don't sign it, there's nothing I can do. My hands are tied. 
So they're going back and forth, back and forth, and eventually, um, Yosef, you know, Yosef's not interested in signing it, and the guy says, listen, if you're not signing it, we can't complete, we can't complete the paperwork, and we can't continue with the procedure, with, uh, with the application. So they said, fine. And they, they, you know, they close up shop, and they leave. And this is where, you know, the husband and wife, they just, you know, they, they lost it all. They're like, they, something they've been living for the whole life. They wanted children. They couldn't have it. And finally they had. They had it on the tips of their fingers. They had the ability to fly home with a baby, and now they got nothing. And they fly home in a very, you know, quiet, very down, downtrodden way. When they, um, when they get to, you know, when they get to, to America, they start thinking. Yosef starts thinking. He says, listen, he says, he says, who's the one that gives, you know, that gives the children? He says, it's not these, you know, not this agency, not this, uh, you know, organization. He says, everything comes from God. No matter if it's adoption, it's not that everything comes from God. He says, I'm not going to lose out by doing that. I'm not going to lose out by giving up something for God. And with this newfound, you know, feeling of urging, of, of strength that he has for, for Hashem and, and the belief and the munah that he has, they're able to, to push it off a little, uh, a little longer. Ten months later, ten months later, she gives birth to twin boys. True story. She gives birth to twin boys, and he's sitting over there. The father is sitting over there, looking into the crib and in the hospital, seeing those two boys. And he's th- and he's thinking. He's like he's like, you know, my wife was not physically able to have any children. She wasn't able to have any children, and now I'm looking at two twin boys. He says everything is from God. And he said, and he and he goes on to say, he says, and you know what? I says, you know why we have children right now? Because this at this point in time, only when I left when I left Israel, I realized that nobody could help me other than God. And when the, and I came to that realization, I realized that there's nothing else other than God. That's when God stepped through. And that's the way that we live, and that's the way we're going to see how Yosef lived his life. And we're going to see from Yosef, the way that Yosef lived his life, we're going to see some amazing, amazing lessons that should be and will be life-changing to you, both in Emunah and in Musa. So in order to start off Yosef's story, we have to go back a little bit to, to Achel, his mother. So Achel, um, you know, she... You know, Yaakov really wanted to marry Rachel. It was very famous. Everybody's well aware of it. And uh, Lavan, his father-in-law, made a little trick. And he says, you know, he says, okay, no problem. Work for Rachel for seven years. At the end of the day, he goes and he switches. He switches the whole the whole setup, and he gives her Leah instead of Rachel. And um, you know, and, and he's married. He's married to, to Leah. And then after a while, you know, Yaakov complains and he says, okay, you know what? I'm going to give you Rachel also, and he marries Rachel as well. Leah is blessed with children. She gives her um, Yaakov her, her handmaid, also blessed with children. Rachel's handmaid, also blessed with children. There's already there's already ten children, ten tribes out and out. Rachel has no children yet. So all of a sudden, she gets blessed with a child, and that's Yosef. Yosef is the eleventh tribe. He comes into the world. He comes into the world being his mother's only child and his father's favorite because his father loved Rachel more than everybody. So you, you think about the way that he grew up. I want you to, I, when I'm saying over the story, try to picture his life. Try to pi- actually put yourself in his position. So he's in a, you know, he gets born into, a, you know, the mother who's a favorite wife. The father who loves not only the wife, but now Yosef becomes his favorite. And we soon see, you know, Yosef is, uh, you know, undoubtedly his favorite child. And they 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 build this strong connection. And Yosef is, is, is learning and he's growing and he's, you know, everything is amazing. <clears throat> and then suddenly he gets a little bit older and he starts hearing that his mother is is praying and you know crying to God for another child. He realizes you know it's his, he's the only child and she wasn't blessed with anybody else. And night after night after she tucks him in, he goes Rachel goes and she starts crying for God please give me another child please give me another child. And uh, one day when he's about seven years old, uh, you know they come in and tell him guess what you know mommy's expecting she's you know she's gonna have another child and he's thinking he's like oh man I'm gonna have a brother you know maybe I have a sister and he's so excited and he's so happy he's gonna have another child. Nine months go by, and Yosef is about seven, eight years old, and I believe he's eight years old, and, um, you know, she goes into labor. 
and she goes into labor, and after 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 the labor, you know, Yaakov goes inside to Yosef, white as a sheet. He says, you know, Yosef, sit down. I need to talk to you. And she, you know, the father starts. Your father Yaakov starts telling Yosef, says, you know, you know, you, you got a baby boy. And he's like, oh, I'm so happy, Baruch Hashem. So, so you know, why are you so sad? What, what's going on? And uh, Yaakov says, you know, he's like, you know. I don't know how to tell this to you, but, but your mommy's not here anymore. And he's like, what do you mean my mommy's not here anymore? Where's my mommy? And this, you know, he said the four words that no boy, no eight-year-old boy should ever hear. And it says, your mommy passed away during the delivery. And that shattered his entire life. Everything that he had, his whole foundation went right down the drain. All his eleven, his, his ten other brothers, they all had mommies to go to that night. Yosef went home alone. Him and his father was the one sitting shiva. Binyamin was born, but he was still a baby. And his entire life, from having that strong structure, just completely fell apart. He was no, he would no longer be tucked in by his mother. He would no longer hear his mother's prayers. And only, it's so unfortunate to have the little uh, orphan at such a young age. And, you know, it, it was really hard for, it was really hard. But Yaakov worked really hard with him. He worked, he went, and he learned with him, and he brought him up. And slowly, slowly, Yosef became the, building up greater and greater and greater until he was having dreams. He was learning Torah, that he was, he, he knew everything. It says that Yaakov Avinu taught everything that he learned in Shem and Evel to Yosef. So, he became, so he became, he, from all the way down, he started climbing all the way back up. And then one day, when he's 17 years old, ya, um, Yaakov goes to Yosef and says, Yosef, listen, your brothers went out with the shepherds. Why don't you go out and see what's going on with them? Where are they? So he said, fine. He goes and he starts traveling. And uh, he, he encounters, he sees them in the distance. <coughs> and he sees his brothers, so he starts walking towards them. And meanwhile, <coughs> excuse me, one of the brothers, so, you know, say, like, oh, look. It's the dreamer who's coming. And one of the brothers says, you know, maybe we should kill him. And they, you know, they gave certain reasons why he deserved to be dead, uh, to be dead, to, to, and the other brother said, well, said, no, 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 let's not kill him, let's throw him in a pit. Meanwhile, unsuspecting, he goes, he sees, hey brothers, you know, he walks around and he sits right next to them. Meanwhile, they grab him, they take off his coat, his favorite coat that his father made for him. He takes off his coat, he's like, hey guys, what's going on? And he takes the, the, they take Yosef and they throw him into the pit. So Yosef's confused, he's like, he's like, Uven, Shimon, Yehuda, what's going on? What are you guys doing? He's like, you're my brothers, what are you doing? And they're not answering him. And he's like, he's like, you guys are descendants of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, the biggest, the biggest tzaddikim of the generation. Why are you doing this to me? Your, your our forefathers gave other people clothes and food and achnasat ochim. He says, how do you do this to your own flesh and blood? And it says in the, in the Midrashim that they actually moved away. They moved away from him so that they don't hear his cries and his screams because they have to discuss now what they're going to do with him. So Yosef, 17 years old, stuck in a pit at this point and screaming and crying and, and begging for mercy, begging for help. Meanwhile, the brothers are on the side eating a meal, trying to discuss what to do with him. And there's a group of seven Midianites that they come by and they hear the screaming and they hear this. So they look into the pit and they see this young lad, you know, just sitting over there screaming. So like, what's going on? And they, they hoist him out of, out of the pit and, uh, you know, they start taking them with him. And all of a sudden, you know, the brothers see that they took, you know, Yosef. So they come charging to them and they're like, what are you doing with our slave? And the Midianite says, slave? Says so this guy looks no more for anything. You're his slaves. Look how noble he looks. Because he looked, he looked very, very presentable. He was, a, you know, one of the most handsome people ever lived. So they're like, no, no, no. The brother says he's our slave. We put him in the pit because he was rebellious, and that's why we're putting at it. So the, they said, listen, you know, finders keepers. We got him. The Midianite says, and we're taking him. So um, and and not only that, they actually took out the Midianites. Took out their swords, and they were going to take Yosef by hook or by crook. Meanwhile, Shimon. Jumped in front of them and yelled this, this war cry that's deafening, that completely shook them up. 
And Shimon goes over to them and says, even if you bring all the people where you came from, you will not be able to defeat us. We're the children of Yaakov and we will decimate you and you'll be eaten. Your corpses will be eaten by jackals. So they got, you know, they started, you know, they, they heard the scream and they heard the threats and they were like, you know, all right. So they backed up a little bit and they made, they made a, uh, they made an agreement. They said, you know what? He says, we'll sell them to you, um, for 20, you know, 20 silver pieces. So, they, they made the, uh, the, the agreement and they, they sold them. This Midianites, the seven Midianites went and they took Yosef. So they're traveling with Yosef and then they're starting to think about it. They're like, wait a minute, maybe we did it. You know, this guy doesn't look like any slave. He's like, maybe he got, you know, maybe he was stolen. Now we're, he's gonna, they're gonna be, you know, they're gonna catch us and they're gonna kill us because we stole the slave. So they, they realize they want to get rid of him. They want to get rid of him. It's, it, it's, you know, it doesn't look good for them. So they're seeing them, they're, they're walking, and uh, traveling, you know, by near, near them is a group of Ishmaelim, of Arabs. And um, they go over to the Arabs and say, you know, you want to buy the slaves? Great slave, look how handsome he is, yada, yada. They sold them, and they said, fine, no, we'll buy him. So they, this, these Arabs buy the slaves. By the way, these are the Arabs that were selling the spice merchants. They were, they were not, uh, you know, which we'll soon speak about. So the Arab... Take Yosef. Meanwhile, Yosef sees these Arabs and he begs them. He says, please bring me back to my father. He'll pay you handsomely for my return. He says, I was taken here by, by captive. And he was giving them the whole story. And they're all like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, whatever you say, slave. And uh, they made him walk in the hot desert sun for hours and hours and end. And they used to beat him and hit him. Every time they used to torture him and, and hurt him, the something else would like happen. Like, like, like uh, you know... A, Supernatural happened. Like, oh, well, one time there was like, you know, hurricanes and lightning and thunder happening. And then another time they were hitting them and then suddenly they were blind. They were struck blindness and they couldn't, the, the animals didn't even move. So they realized there was some sort of connection. So they, the, these, these Ishmaelim, they said, listen, he says, pray to your God. He says, I, if we are really being punished by you, then you could get this away. And if you get this away, then fine. And you know, we'll change our, our little tactics. And he goes and he prays to God and everything stops. All the, all, you know, all the trouble stops. And they realize that, you know, something's going on. Go, you know, something special is with this slave, uh, so to speak. So they decide, uh, again, they don't want to be, you know, involved in this uh, situation. So they go and they bring him to Egypt. And in fact, before they brought him to Egypt, they actually considered of bringing him back to Yaakov. Some of them said, listen, some of the group of the Ishmael said, listen, let's go back to, you know, Yaakov. Let's, even if we just get our money back, let's, you know, get rid of it. Others said, listen, we've traveled too far. And we're to go back to, you know, uh, it's, gonna, it's just too much. Let us go and just drop him off in Egypt. So they decided they're close to Egypt. They're going to go bring him to Egypt. So they bring him down to Egypt. And <coughs> they meet, um, they meet uh, um, people from the tribe of Midan. If I'm not mistaken. Uh, the tribe of Midan is is from the son of Abraham after after. Sarah died. He married Ketuah, which was some say it's Hagar, and he had some children of them. So one of the one of the people were from this from this tribe that they sold him. So they sold it to him for uh, for nine shekels, and they went and they bought it from him. And they said, "Listen, um, we ca- we hear that Potiphar is looking for a slave. Potiphar was a very wealthy uh, person to do in in the you know Egyptian society, and we heard he's looking for a slave. So they figured let's buy him. We'll sell him, you know, make some money on it. We'll sell him to Potiphar. So." They buy him from the from uh, from the Arabs, and by the way, these were the Arabs, like we said before. They were carrying, uh, they were they were spice merchants, which means is usually the way that the Arabs uh, deal with they deal with really really smelly types of uh, materials, you know, petroleum, like really stuff that is you know re- smells so bad. And when they were traveling with this nice sweet smelling you know spices, Yosef, all of a sudden he's like he's like wait a minute, he's like this is not usual for the Arabs to sell this, and he's like he's like God's trying to send me a sign over here that you know he's still with me, and Yosef was able to get the sign through all his troubles from just seeing the smelling of the spices, and this is something we're going to speak about as other in depth. So, but anyways, I want to finish I want to finish uh, uh, going on in the story that uh, um, so he goes to uh, Potiphar. 
and uh, Potiphar, you know, he, he, they present him the slave Yosef, and Potiphar looks at him. And by the way, there's a midrash that says that Potiphar looked at him because he looked at him in, in a way that um, no regular man looks at other man. You know, he actually wanted him for more than just a slave. He, you know, used to swing for the other team, and uh, so he actually it says that he actually wanted, uh, you know, he wanted Yosef. So, in any case, he goes and he takes uh, he takes Yosef, and he's like. Something's fishy over here. This guy looks too good to be a slave. You know, he's like, he's like, something's wrong over here. He's like, are you sure this guy's a slave? So the, 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 the tribe of Midan said, yeah, you know, we bought him from, you know, from, uh, from Arab merchants. So Batifa said, you know what, I'll buy him off you, but bring me those Arab merchants. I want to make sure that he's really a slave. So they bring the Arab merchants over, they find him, they bring him down, they say, you know, is this guy really a slave? And they're like, yeah, we bought him from other people. He's a slave. So fine, he took it. By the way, look how God orchestrated it from one to another to another to another just so that everything will happen that he will be sold as a slave. If you think about it, if it would have been just one person, the guy says, no, I bought it from some brothers. Something looked fishy. But one after another after another, all of a sudden, you couldn't trace it back all the way at the end and the sale was good. The sale was valid. They thought it was all good and nice and dandy. So, the um, what what happened was is think about it how Yosef is feeling at this time. First of all, look how not even not not his family doesn't want him. Not even the the people that buy him, his masters don't want him. He keeps on changing over from hands to hands to hands to hands to from a new place to a new place. And in fact, it's a lot more serious than you think because Yosef thought that his whole family was in it, not that just his brothers. He because he starts putting two the two together. He's like, listen, Yaakov, send me to my brothers. And he says he starts thinking. He says, Abraham and Sarah. He says about Abraham and Sarah, there was one good kid, one bad kid, Ishmael and, and Yitzchak. Sarah goes and says, you know what? Kick Ishmael out. It's not good for, for, for me. One mother goes and says, you know, get the, get the other child away. Let's go on to the next generation, Yitzchak and Rivka. What does Rivka say? Esav and Yaakov, they don't mix well. Send, send Yaakov away. I don't want him to get influenced in, in, uh, with, uh, with, uh, yeah, with Yaakov and Esav together. Come to this generation, he's like, listen, I don't have a mother to stick up for me. My mother passed away, he says. Right? He says, you know, he passed away when he was eight years old. Now you're talking about he's 17 years old. Passed away, you know, nine years ago. So he's going and he's thinking, he's like, he's like, maybe the other mothers convinced Yaakov to send me away. And that's why he sent me away. And this is all orchestrated. So at this point in time, Yosef's entire structure came crashing down. Spiritually, physically, everything. He lost everything from being the top, being the tribe of, of Yaakov Avinu to nothing. A slave and a family disowning him. And this is when you, let's go back to the revisit that, that one point. He's traveling, and he gets sold to spice merchants. And Chazal say, the Midrashim actually say, which is, it's, it, if you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. He's, you get stolen, you get kidnapped, and the getaway car smells of nice perfume, and you're like, ah, God is here, you know? Ah, you know, who cares about Ahmed, and you know, and all those people stealing me with this, screaming, you know, I got that, it smells good over here. They're like, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? How does he see God in that situation? His entire life comes crashing down. And he sees God because of something smelling? And the answer is yes. He was able to see God in every little detail in life. And we're soon going to see that is going to be his secret of success. His secret of success is seeing God through the unseen. Now, let's go on a little bit more with the story of, of um, Yosef. So Yosef goes and he uh, gets into the... Um, he, he gets uh, sold to Potiphar at the age of uh, 17. And, uh, anybody know what Potiphar's wife's name? Everybody knows her as Eshes Potiphar. So, her name was Zulika. Zulika. Her name was Zulika. She was, um, arguably one of the most prettiest women alive in that time, and, and, and you could also say of all time. So she was extremely, extremely beautiful. She was married, technically, to, uh, Potiphar, his, uh, his, his new master. So, 
he goes and Potiphar sees, Potiphar was the man, Zulika is the, is the woman. Potiphar sees that everything Yosef touches is successful. He's, he's, you know, he's like really good at everything that he does. So he promotes him and he promotes him and he promotes him until he's running his entire household. Potiphar was very well to do. He was a top slave. Top, you know, top slave of, the, of uh, ruling over all the other slaves. And, um, then, you know, when, when Zulika, when, when Eshes Potiphar saw him and she was mesmerized by his beauty and she was like, I gotta have it. And she nonstop tried to seduce him. And it says three times a day she would change her clothes. He would never see her in the same clothes. And he was in, with, you know, in this situation for a year, which means it's one year. He never saw her. Three times a day she appeared to him. Never saw her in the same, in the same clothing, uh, in the same, uh, uh, wardrobe at the same time. And she non-stop tried to seduce him again and again and again. She did not back down. You know, she definitely did not get any hints. And, uh, besides, trying to seduce him physically, she also tried to seduce, to seduce him in the spiritual sense. She says, Yosef, he says, like, hey, why don't you come out? He says, you read stars, right? And Yosef, you know, that back then Yaakov taught the, the children, how, you know, everything. Even, we'll soon see even, even stuff that, uh, you know, about magic and certain things. So they go and she goes into the stars and says, you see, in the stars, it says from me and you is going to come a child. Now, why would it say it in the stars if it's not supposed to be? It, it's supposed to be. And then he goes and he says, listen, he says, you're a married woman. I can't. He's my master. How am I supposed to go? He gave me everything. He, you know, gave me such a promotion. How do I go and stick it in his face? And she says, listen, she starts convincing me that. I said, we're not really married. You know, I, you know, like I said before, he swings for the other team. He doesn't really, you know, he would never consummated the marriage. And according to Egyptian society, he never, he was never with me intimately. And hence, you know, we're never considered even married. So you could be with me. It's not even going to be a problem. She convinced him from all angles. Now, let me ask you a question. Any person alive, you know, today that we could think about, it would be in that situation. Disowned by his family, you know, uh, gets sold into the worst of the worst. He's 18 years old. I don't think, you know, 18 years old, the type of, uh, you know, temptations that 18-year-olds have, you know, is, is, you know, fairly high. He's in his prime of his temptation. He comes in, the most beautiful woman in the entire world, convinces him from the spiritual side, the stars, you know, that he's not even married, everything. Can you resist that? Who can resist that? And yet, Yosef resisted. Not once. Day after day after day, he was completely resisted. He pushed her off. Unbelievable, the power that he had. So, he goes and, um, you know, the, 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 uh, Aisha's Potiphar's wife, start, um, I'm sorry, her friends, start seeing her. She's pale. She's losing weight. She doesn't look good. She's like, she's like, what's going on with you? You're, you're looking bad. She's like, you don't understand. She says, I had this Hebrew slave in my house. I've been trying to seduce him time and time again, almost a year already, and nothing doing. And the, her friends started laughing. I was like, you kidding me, a Hebrew? You're trying to seduce a Hebrew? She says, we got the mightiest Egyptian army at your fingertips. You can have everybody you want. She says, what are you worried about a Hebrew slave? And she's like, listen, she says, you never saw this Hebrew slave. She says, if you see him, you'll realize what I'm talking about. So they said, fine, challenge accepted, you know. So they go and she invites them over. She invites them over to, to their house and she gives them each a citron. A citron is a, a talk. She gives them a talk and a, ni- and, a, and a knife to cut through with it. And then she, she calls Yosef in. And, you know, the, the woman, they were sitting in a semicircle. They see, they see Yosef and they were just mesmerized. And Aisha's Potiphar goes to them and says, look at your fingers. And they look at their fingers, their all fingers were bloody because they were cutting the etrog, they were so mesmerized by his beauty that they started cutting, the, 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 everything was full of blood. And they're like, you're telling me you're cutting off your own hand when you're looking at him. And after she said, they sent them out, they said, you know what? They said, said uh, I'm going to quote it. They said, it's hardly impossible for someone to look at such a beauty and restrain oneself. That's what they said. That's what these women, that the woman said about Yosef, Yosef at Sadiq. And she says, I can't do it. I don't know what to do. 
So, you know, the women huddle up and they start, you know, doing their, their woman talk and they're like, okay, this is going to be the plan, right? They take out their diaries, you know, and they start, you know, with all the fuzzy pens. I'm like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to so we trap them over here, right? All the girlfriends are in there now. And they go and she decides that she's going to force him. That's it. Today, there was a certain day that, ha- that came that nobody was in the palace. Why was nobody in the palace? <coughs> One of the reasons nobody was in the palace, there was actually two interpretations that I saw. Number one, it was Paro's birthday. So everybody went to celebrate Paro's birthday, which is actually one of the first birthdays, uh, and one of the only really birthday celebrations you see in the Torah, um, is Paro's birthday. Which is an interesting point, which maybe we should speak about it once, about birthdays in Torah. Birthdays in Torah, is, are you, are you allowed to have a birthday party? Because we see in the Torah, who had a birthday party? Paro. It's a very interesting topic. But in any case, everybody went to Paro's birthday party, so everybody was gone, except that she faked herself that she was not feeling well, and she wanted to stay home. Meanwhile, she wanted to really just, you know, get some alone time with Yosef to try to really spy, once and finally seduce him. <coughs> and there was another interpretation that says, that no, that what happened was, it was the Nile, which was, you know, one of the main things that the Egyptian society needed, was overflowing. <coughs> I'm sorry, I just got like something in my throat. So, thank you. So, the, the Nile was, was overflowing, which is a time for celebration, thank you, for merrymaking. So everybody went to the celebration, except for her, again, she faked that she was sick, and she decided she was going to go in. So, it's Yosef. And, um, and her in the home. Meanwhile, Yosef is doing whatever he's supposed to do, and he sees her, so he's always trying to avoid her, and she blocks him in, and she corners him, and she grabs him. She grabs him, and not only that, she takes a dagger out, she takes an actual knife out, and she puts it to the throat, and she's like, You're, I'm going to have you today. She's like, it's going to be my well today, or I'm going to kill you. So, somehow, Yosef was able to pull away from her, <laughs> and not only did it pull away from one, while she pulled away, the, the knife actually dug in, and what happened was his coat got cut, and she was able to rip off his coat. And he grabbed the coat, and he just booked, and he just ran. And you think about it, you think about it, this, is, this guy at this point in time, he's 18 years old. What he went through the past year of his life was tra- completely traumatizing. You think, okay, God said, listen, what? Who? No, well, no, some, yeah, some of the I'm saying about that, but, we won't bring about, uh, about that now. Maybe it was other time when we talk about his whole story, we'll, we'll bring that out because we don't have time to, to uh, get into all that details. But in any case, it go, um, he runs away. So you think God, God will say, okay, Yosef, enough. You know, you had enough tests. Now it's, you know, you had a Holocaust for a year in a certain sense. Um, enough suffering. Now it's, you know, smooth sailing. She tried to seduce you. You overcame it day after day. An impossible, impossible thing. That's it. Smooth sailing. And the answer is no, no, no. What happened was when when uh, the when Potiphar came home, she said, she said, look what this. And she started. She framed Yosef. She said he tried to come unto me. And look, I grabbed the, I grabbed my coat. I grabbed this coat off me, and that's the proof that he tried to come unto me. And she started screaming and yelling. And eventually, they actually took Yosef and they threw him into prison. They said, you try. This is what you do. You try to seduce my wife when I'm out. And they threw him. In, they chucked him to the king's prison. And uh, he was in prison. Anybody know how long he was in prison for? 12 years. Not for a month or two. He wasn't like, you know, it was in a holding. By the way, prisons in those days, it's not like you have, uh, you know, you know, hot food. You're in a, you're in a pit. You're in, it's, it's the worst of the worst. For 12 years. 12 years he sat in a prison for a crime which he did not commit, for doing something that he should have done, and for not messing up. At this point in time, you're like, alright, if he was religious until this point, you know, if anybody happened to, to nowadays, they would need so much therapy. They would need all the therapists in the world to convene and try to figure out how to destroy this person, you know, how to get this person back. But you look at Yosef, Yosef was still strong. He was still strong. And the question is, how in the world is that even possible? So, 
<clears throat> Yosef, you would think at this point, he'll be like, you know what, that's it, I give up. I'm in jail already, that's it. But he doesn't give up. He doesn't, and he starts working in the jail. In the jail, he's successful. He starts becoming successful in the jail. And he starts building himself up in the jail until he's literally running the jail. He's running the jail. This guy does not back down. He's talking about a guy that's just a fighter, just keeps on going. So, so much so that, um, you know, that uh, one day, you, you know, towards, you know, 10 years in, there's somebody comes over to him and uh, one of the, you know, the baker and the winemaker, they get up with a gloomy face. Literally a gloomy face. It's not like they came over to him and they're like, hey, Yosef, we had a dream. It's bad. They woke up with a gloomy face. So he goes over to them, which means is for the past, you know, 11 years of his life has been miserable. And he comes over to them and he sees his, his, his roommates, his, his cellmates, in a gloomy face. He's like, hey, guys, what's going on? What's wrong? I'm like, are you kidding me? This guy just went through what he went through and he's able to go look at somebody else and say, hey, buddy, what's wrong? So they open up to him and said, listen, you know, I had a dream and, you know, the dream, you know, yada, yada. They explained the, the whole dream situation. And he says, Yosef says, okay, let me try to interpret it for you. Maybe I can do it. And I want to show you, I want to share you, we spoke about this briefly at one point when we gave the class on dreams, which we haven't taught anytime. Um, but I want to bring up this point because I, I feel it brings it uh, uh, very strong on uh, how he interpreted the dreams. Yosef, and we'll do the baker's dream. He, the baker goes over to him and he goes over to, uh, to Yosef and says, listen, you know, first he interpreted the winemaker's dream and he interpreted it for the good. He said in three days time, you're going to go back to, to Paro and you're going to be back and be his Saramashkim. You're going to start serving him again. The, <coughs> the baker goes, right. The baker goes and says, listen, I like that interpretation. You know, I got a dream too. And he goes over to his dream and he said his dream, you know what his dream was? He had three baskets on his head. The top basket had a bunch of bread inside there. And birds were coming and eating from the, from the breads. So he goes over to Yosef. He's like, oh, so three days, three baskets, three days. I'm gonna, I'm gonna also, I'm gonna go back and, uh, I'm gonna get out of this prison. So Yosef, so, you know, he's like, he's like, he's like, well, you know, yours is a little bit different. He says, your dream actually represents that in three days time, uh, you will be hung by Paul. Uh, good day to you, sir. You know, and, and that's, you know, that was it. And, and the guy, and, and just the way that he interpreted it, that's how the Torah says, that's exactly how it, three days time, the winemaker, he got back into power. Three days time, the, the baker got hung. So the question is that the Dubna Maggit asks, he says, how did Yosef know that? How was he able to interpret it? And the Dubna Maggit explains, because he was able to see the details and everything. He goes over and says, you know how he figured out that the baker, and we'll explain the baker with the story that the Dubna Maggit brings, how he knew that the baker was the one who is um, going to die? He said, he brings a parable, which we spoke about when we spoke about the dreams. He says, what happened was, he says, there was once a king. And this king wanted to build this magnificent painting on his wall. And he decided that he is going to hide, find out the best painter in the world, bring him in, no matter the cost, he wants the most realistic painting possible on his wall. Remember that? Eh? So he goes and he searches high and low and he finds the best painter by far. Charges an exorbitant amount of money. He says, money is not an issue. I want you to come. I want you to paint me the most realistic picture. So the painter says, fine, he starts, uh, you know, he quotes his price, and the king says, not a problem. He starts painting. And he starts painting, and, it, you know, as it's going on, it's, go, it's it, you know, it's magnificent. It's a, it's a painting of a, picture, of a person holding a basket of fruits. And um, after he finishes it, he says, it was so real that people that were walking into the room where he was painting it saw the picture, and they thought the guy, there was a real person there, and they started speaking to the picture until they came closer, and they realized, wait, it's just a painting. So... They go and the, the, he shows the king the, you know, the painting. Afterwards, the king says, magnificent. You know, you live up to your, you know, to, uh, to, to the words on the street, you live it up. He goes and he says, well, listen, full price, you're going to get paid for it. But he says, I'm going to give an option of a bonus. He says, we're going to put this on display. And we're going to have everybody come and critique it. If anybody's able to find an issue to critique it, the bonus goes from you and it goes to them. 
if they're not able to critique anything, the bonus goes to you. He says, Chazakabu, go ahead, go try. So they put us on display, and for, the king announces, anybody who's able to find something wrong with this painting gets, gets a reward. When the king says a reward, it's not, you know, $5. So people come from all, you know, sorts of places, and they try to they look at the painting, and they look at it this way, they look at it that way. The painting was perfect. It was so perfect that birds were coming down and trying to eat the fruit on the platter. So, meanwhile, there was an old man that was sitting in the back, and day after day, people just came, they tried to find, they couldn't find anything. Finally, this old man goes up to the king and says, I found the, I found the issue. You know, so everyone's quiet, it's like, oh, so someone finally found an issue. The painter comes, and he's, and he's listening, and he says, he says, you know, the birds are coming, and they're eating from the fruit on the, you know, on the, you know, from the platter. And the king says, I know, amazing, right? And the, and the, the, the wise man says, no, no, no. He says, if the bird would realize that the person who's holding the platter was really a human person and he was alive and well, they would never dare to go closer. Have you ever seen a bird come in? Must be, in the bird's eyes, there's something going on over here. They realize that it's fake, that it's not real. The king was very nice. He says, you know what, you get part of the reward and the rest they, they gave it to him. So explains it to the market. says, Yosef, in, his, in the dream of the, of the baker, he had three, three levels and birds were eating from the top level. Says Yosef, why are birds not scared of your body? Why are they coming so close to you that they're eating from food on your bed? And you think, must be that you're not alive, that you're dead. Yosef was able to look at the small details in life. Because he was able to look at the small details in life, that's where his success came. Because he was able to see God in the spices. Yeah, he saw God in the spices. But you know what? That was his outlook in life. He saw no matter what bad happened to him, no matter what, he saw God. And when you see God in the small things in life, there's nothing stopping you. You're seeing everything. He looked at the details. He says, you know, many, many times in life, there are, you know, there's issues and there's things that come up. And we just don't get it. We just don't, it's like God sending a sign here, just a sign there. What about the guy that's, uh, the wine guy? The wine guy had a different dream. He had a dream of three branches. And the branches, and he would take, took the grapes and he actually poured the grapes. And so, he, you know, there was no dream of birds coming to him. So his dream, you know... Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a whole interpretation of it because it went from, from immature grapes to mature grapes, the speed of the process, and it was three days. I speak about it in the, on the dreams class, but he also how, how it explains the dream. But the same idea. He looks at the details. He looks at the details and he's able to tear it apart, break it apart, and it, it fit exactly where it's supposed to be. So, but you look at it, so he goes and he interprets his dream, and then he goes and he tells uh, these two, um, you know, the, the winemaker, well, he tells the winemaker because the baker's not going to make it. He says, listen, you know, three days' time, God's gonna, I mean, power is gonna go and he's gonna take you out. Do me a favor. You know, remember me. What did the, you know, what did the, you know, the winemaker says, oh, buddy, please, I got you. Come on. You know, we've been cellmates for so long, don't worry about it. But, you know what happens when people get high in power? Forget about everything that happened in the bat, and they completely forgot it for two years. He didn't, he didn't mention it. Two years later, Paul has a dream. He has a dream with the, you know, the seven cows and the seven stalks, that whole story, and people try to interpret the dream and nobody's able to interpret it. Finally, the wine guy says, he says, he says, hey, wait a minute. He says, I know a guy who can interpret a dream. He says, a guy in prison. There's a Hebrew in prison that is able to interpret dreams. So Paul says, bring him in. So they bring him in. They, they, they clean him up. They bring him in. And they said, um, they go to Yosef. He says, Yosef, can you interpret the dreams? And if you look in Bereshit, Genesis, chapter 41, verse 16, you know what Yosef replied to Paul? He says, Elohim He says, what do you mean? He says, I can't give you the interpretation. God will give you the interpretation. He's sitting 12 years in prison. What God? What God is saying, well, you know, he says, I did everything right. He, he would be the person who had the most questions. Everything I did, I did right. I did for you, God. What are you putting in me in this situation? But he didn't say that. He didn't say, well, God, I don't believe in God anymore. You know what he said? He says, only God could interpret the, the dreams for you. And he goes, and he knew that, you know, 
no matter how much his life was turned upside down, he knew that there was a God above him, and he was able to, and, and, and by the way, you know how he was able to get actually eventually and interpret God, you know, Paul's dream? Also, the same idea, by looking on the small details in life. He was, he was, you know, he was living a life that, you know, he knew that God was always watching over him. No matter what the issue was, because he saw a little bit of sunlight over there, he says, aha, I see God over here. And, you know, this uh, uh, brings to mind this story that, I can't, not for me, I can't even do anything. Right. Yeah. But he, yeah, exactly. He's like, it's like, you know, and everything, he, he was successful at that point in time. He could have said it was all me. What do you mean? I have a work ethic. A little bit credit. Yeah, a little, nothing. He did zero. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, the amazing. And this is, by the way, why you see Yosef, by the way. Here's a nice bit of, uh, you know, Jewish uh, information that most people don't know. Who was the longest person that ever ruled? Yosef. Yosef. 80 years he ruled, from 30 to 110. The longest person that ever ruled in the Jewish history was Yosef HaTzadik. He even ruled more than any pharaoh ruled. Yeah. He was not, a, well, I don't know, it could be, I'm not sure about that. But, uh, but, I, but the same point, he, he was arguably one of the most successful Jews of all times. I think he ruled more than anybody ever ruled in this space. Oh, it could be, I don't know. I think I read that. Well, since we're talking about records, right, there was nobody in history who went from... Nothing, right, from a slave? Prisoner to become... Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, this is an important point to bring out. The, of- the world, yeah, it's a good point. It's unbelievable. You look at his story, it is unbelievable. We're not over yet, by the way. There's still a lot more to go in the story, but I want to bring you this point. It is unbelievable what he went through. You know, there were so many times that he could have been like, you know how many times that people come to me, I'm keeping Shabbat, I'm keeping kosher, I'm learning every single day. Where's my blessing? Where, where's my blessing? I'm like, read the story of Yosef. And I don't, you know, I don't wish it upon anybody to sit for 12 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit. But he sat for 12 years in prison. One year as a slave for a total of 13 years, from 17 to 30 and not once he said, God, where are you? What's going on? He says, I thought that, you know, I was doing the right thing. Not one, and non-stop, he did the right thing. This is such a strong lesson that we can learn. He says, in due time, look, he didn't question it. And look, he became the top of the top. We don't know what God does certain things. But one thing we have to know is we don't question it. We don't question it like Yosef did not question it. We believe like Yosef believed. And we believe like that, we'll be successful like that. It is unbelievable power. Anyway, so I want to share with you the story. It's also a true story. Um, there was uh, there was a woman by the name of Mrs. Bernstein. Uh, she lived in a place called Emmanuel, and uh, she used to, she had a very large family, and she was a seminary teacher in in Yerushalayim, which is about a thirty mile um, trip from from where she was until um, until until her seminary. So she was very happy to do it. She, she needed the money for there was a very large family. So uh, she would take every morning the bus to go to the seminary uh, to go to the seminary, and she would teach her classes. And then it would be enough time to you know run a few errands in Yerushalayim, and then make take the trip back home in order to greet her kids off the bus. Uh, you know at that point in time. So the um, you know this is how this is the way that she used to spend. She would go on the bus. She would read Tehillim in the morning, and then you know you know get to seminary teach, <coughs> and that was her daily routine. One day. She's running extremely late, and she's she's realizing that you know she's either going to be able to eat breakfast or get the bus, but she can't do both of them. So she's going back and forth, back and forth. She's like, you know what? I can't. I need to be on there on time. She skips breakfast and she runs to the bus. She gets on the bus in the nick of time. She gets to uh, she gets on the bus. She's thinking, you know what? She's like, you know what? If I get to to Ushlam a little bit earlier, I grab something to eat and then I'll go run to teach my class. And she gets for some reason it got delayed, and she got to Yerushalayim the last minute. She was rushing and she had to rush from from the bus to her school. 
And she's going to her school, and she's sitting by, um, you know, by by the school. And she, meanwhile, she's she's starving. You know, she's she, you know this she's she's fasting not unintentionally, and she's thinking, you know what, you know, she taught the classes regular. She says, right after I finish class, let me run before I get the bus. Let me go run, pick something to eat. I'll eat on the way on the bus on the way back. So. She's running, she's going back and forth, she's going, you know, she's, she's, she's rushing to the bus stop, and she looks at the clock, and she realizes she has to be back in Emmanuel in her, in her, in her town, um, in a certain amount of time, if she doesn't make it this bus, she's gonna miss her appointment. And she's like, alright, well, you know, what else to do? So she goes, and she skips her bus, and she skips her meal, and she goes, and she, and she gets on the bus. She's sitting on the bus, and, uh, she's, she's, you know, she's, they're, they're driving, you know, they're getting close to her town, and suddenly, she hears a pop, and, and the, 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 the bus starts to jolt. She's like, oh great, flat tires, like I'm never gonna make it to my meeting. And then suddenly she hears another pop, and another pop, and she realizes it wasn't a flat tire. They were getting under attack, they were being ambushed by a bunch of terrorists. And the terrorists were, were attacking, they were shooting at them from the, from the angles. So, the bus driver tries to floor it, everyone's screaming, get down, get down. Happens to be it was a bulletproof bus. And the, the, at this point in time, they're ready, the, the terrorists, which knew what, what was, what was going to happen, they shot both of the back tires. So only thing that was left was the two front tires, and it couldn't, uh, you know, they, they, it couldn't carry the weight of the bus. So, the terrorists are shooting from all angles, people are screaming, people are, you know, saying shma, you know, it, it's, it, end of the world for them. And, uh, finally the, you know, the, the terrorists sees that they can't get through the bulletproof windows of the glass and, and things like that. So what they started doing is that they started climbing on the roof of the bus. And going down and shooting down at the people from the from the roof of the bus, and everybody's screaming. It's it's terror stricken, and everybody's down on the floor. And this Mrs. Burton is down on the floor, and all of a sudden she hears Allah Akbar, and she you know the shooting starts starts coming. And then suddenly she feels like uh, she feels a pierce on one side and a pierce on the other side, and you know everything is wet, and she's in pain compl- everywhere. Uh, you know she's been she's been shot, and she's thinking at that point in time, you know that's it, it it's over. So she's laying on her stomach, and she's going to turn on her back, getting ready to say Shema Yisrael and meet her Maker. She goes, and as as she turns over, she turns over to, to say Shema Yisrael, she looks up, and she sees a terrorist standing, you know, right on top of her, you know, with a gun pointing at her. And at that point in time, she knew it was over. Somehow, at that point in time, you know, meanwhile, while the bus got hit, the originally the, the bus driver radioed in for some help. At that point in time, when the terrorist was right on top of the bus, shooting down at her, they, um, there was an army vehicle that was nearby that saw what was happening. It, it, it zoomed up, and it hit the bus. So the terrorists went flying, and then they went on the shootout with the army and the terrorists, and uh, they were able to, you know, subdue the, all, the, you know, all the terrorists. They were able to kill them all, and then the paramedics came, Zaka came, and they all came in, and they started pulling bodies after bodies out of this, uh, out of this massacred bus. And, uh, you know, she gets pulled out. The medic said, listen, she's not gonna make it, she lost so much blood, we gotta, we gotta transport her to the closest hospital. So ordinarily, in such a situation when, where she had so much blood, she would ordinarily need one of the big hospitals in Yushalayim, Tel Aviv, one of the big hospitals. But they're like, there's no time. They took her to the nearest smallest hospital. And they ran to the hospital, and they said, um, you know, they, they gave all the, you know, the, what was happening, and they rushed her right in. It just so happened to be, that there was the biggest doctor in Israel in that small hospital. He was a surgeon, and he was teaching other surgeons a certain uh, procedure. And when they heard that happened, so he was called right on site because he was the, he, you know, he was the most qualified for it. And he went under, she went under three-hour um, surgery to try to uh, save her life. Three hours go by, and you know she's in the recovery. Bokushim was successful, and uh, you know the surgeon comes to her afterwards, and you know later she finds out that you know it was just hashkacha that it just so happens to be that the surgeon was happened to be there at that time. And she, when she says the story, she's like, you know, it wasn't just so happened to be God orchestrated everything. But the surgeon goes over to her and he says, um, 
He says, you know, that, you know, I'm so-and-so surgeon. I performed the surgery on you. But it looked like it was successful. Um, but I have a question uh, for you. He said, um, you know, when I, when I opened you up and we're doing surgery inside, I noticed that your stomach was empty. Did you eat anything today? And she's like, you know, well, who cares? Like, what's the difference about that? And she's like, she's like, no, I happen to not been able to eat because, you know, I, I was just running late from place to place to place to place. I wasn't able to eat. So he says you should know that the fact that you weren't, you didn't eat is what saved your life. Because he said if you would have eaten, you had, would have had stuff in your stomach, your blood pressure would have been just slightly higher, and the blood would have came out just with slightly more pressure, you would have lost too much blood and you wouldn't have made it. And she goes, and you know, she goes, and she made a full recovery. But the one thing that they asked her, they said, you know, when you were laying over there and you saw the terrorist face to face, you saw his face, um, what was going through your mind? So she said, to be honest, she says, you know, on the bus ride home, I was like, you know, how are we going to pay the mortgage? They had money problems. You know, how, what am I going to do with the, you know, with the, you know, the shiduk for one of her daughters? You know, she had another child that wasn't learning so well. Another person had another problem. She had problems after problems after problems while, you know, sitting on the bus. And she was very nervous about what's going to happen. When she turned around, she says, and she looked up at the face of the terrorist, none of that mattered. It was, she was like, to be honest, it was the most peaceful thing. I, re- I thought, you know, it was all going to be over. And I knew at one point in time, it's all up in God's hands. There's nothing that I can do at this point in time. I'm just waiting for God. And guess what? God came and saved her. God, it, it was unbelievable. And she goes and she's, and, and she explains, she's like, I couldn't eat breakfast. I was, you know, and you think about it, I was suffering all day. I'm like, God, why are you doing this to me? I just want to have some food. I'm starving. And God says, no, 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 you don't understand. My dear daughter, you need this. You need this. This is what's going to save your life. And she goes, and, and this is how much we have to think about in our daily life. There's so many things that things don't happen. Things don't happen the way we're supposed to happen. And one thing after another doesn't happen. And we're thinking, you know what? Why is God doing this to us? I give this example. You know, uh, there's somebody who is going through uh, a bunch of rooms. And he goes, you know, he tries to open one door. It's locked. He tries to open another door. It's locked. Keeps on going to the door. Lock, lock, lock. And he's like, God, what's going on over here? People go to this business, not successful. This business, not successful. This, nothing successful. And they're like, what's going on over here? What are you doing? And God says, I'm directing you to the, the most successful place that you will ever have. And that's straight on. And we look, go through life. And sometimes, unfortunately, we have failures. And we have failures and we're thinking, God, come on. He says, I'm, I'm doing everything that you asked me for. I'm doing this. And God says, listen, you don't know the whole picture yet. He says, I'm directing you to your most successful part. Yes, you had some failures. But that's only because you're going in the wrong direction. And I had to put you on the right path. This was the power of Yosef. Yosef was able to see that even though things were not going the right way, but he's like, you know, God has a reason. God has a plan. And you know what? Guess what? It was an amazing plan. He became the ruler, the most successful Jew in the history. Unbelievable plan. Let us continue with the story. I know it's getting late, so I apologize if anybody needs to leave. But we have to finish. I feel like I have to finish the story. This is a one, this is like a, this is not like a part two. This Yosef story has to be in a one sitting type of situation. So we go to Parshat Vayigash. You think, He's going and he's sitting and he's he's away from his from his parents uh, for 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 such a long time, and his brothers come. His brothers come to him right after you know after you know how many years we're talking about over here. We're talking about over twenty years of not seeing them. Uh, all of a sudden, because what happened was you know, just a timeline. So he was sold when he was seventeen. Then he was he was in he was a, a slave for one year until he was eighteen. Then he was in prison for another twelve years. Then it was set, so he was thirty. Then there was seven years of plenty. And then there was, so he's 37 at this point in time. Then there was two years of the starvation, and that's when the brothers came to see him. So he's at this point in time roughly about 39 years old. He was sold when he was 17. You do the math, that's 22 years, right? He comes in, and and the brothers uh, come to him. What is a normal person, you know, sees his brother after 22 years? What if they make fun of him? They sold him, oh, the dreamer's coming. You know, what is the first thing that you're going to say? Hey, guys, guess what? Uh, Ah, you just bowed down to me. I'm Yosef. I was right, you were wrong. 
Yosef didn't say anything like that. Yosef, the brothers made fun of him. Oh, the dreamer, the dreamer is coming. What did Yosef say? Yosef, when he revealed himself to his brothers, he goes, he's like, everybody out. I don't want to embarrass my brothers. I want everybody out. Not only that, this is the craziest thing. This is, this is a, I'm, I'm getting excited. All right, this is the craziest thing. He pushes all his brothers out. I'm sorry, he pushes all those servants out so that he doesn't get embarrassed, so that the brothers don't get embarrassed. Which means this, Yosef, 22 years he's away from his family, going, went through what he went through, and he doesn't even try to rub it in his face of his brothers. He says, no, I don't want you to be embarrassed. I'm sending you away. And not only that, they, he tells him, he says, oh, you go look in, in, um, in Bereshit in chapter 45. He says, you know, he sends everybody away, and the brothers feel bad. They feel embarrassed. They're like, oh my gosh, this is Yosef? Actually, he puts himself at risk. Uh, oh, yeah, he puts himself more than one time. Yeah. There's no bodyguards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he put himself at risk at his life to not embarrass somebody else. Unbelievable. Yeah, crazy. And he goes, and after that, so the brothers felt bad. They were like, oh my gosh, Yosef, he was right all along. We were wrong. So what would you think? You'd be like, okay, you know, I was good until now. Yeah, bring it on, guys. Come on. Where's the apology? He doesn't even ask her. He says, no, 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 don't worry about it. He goes and he starts saying, oh, guys, guys, hey, don't worry. He says, it's all from God. He says, don't worry about it. God sent me here because he knew what was going to happen. He says, it wasn't you. He goes over to the people that sold him as slave and caused him 13 years of misery. And he goes to them and he says, hey, it wasn't you. You know how many times in life that people go and they they steal a few thousand dollars and we're like, that person is dead to me, you know? And, or they go and they, you know, something happens and that 13 years, imagine getting locked up for 13 years in the worst prison in the world, meeting the person that locked you up when you did nothing wrong and you're saying, don't worry about it. It was all part of God's plan. You're just a messenger. You know, unbelievable. This is what, you know, this was what Yosef was. This <coughs> it, it, this is how it was. And furthermore, listen, this is amazing. Binyamin and Yaakov never knew that Yosef was sold as a slave. You realize that? <coughs> this is a midrash that we said in, uh, on Shabbat. And Pasha Miketz, uh, the, uh, the, um, the man law says, brings about, it says, um, you know, y- y- uh, Yosef met with Binyamin. Thank you. Yosef met with Binyamin and uh, before that he revealed himself that it was Yosef. And he says, uh, and he goes, and he pulls out this ancient book. Thank you. He pulls out this ancient book to, to Benjamin. And Benjamin is sitting over here, not knowing that he's sitting next to his real brother, his full brother, Yosef. And he's thinking he's sitting in front of an Egyptian ruler. And he goes over to his brother, uh, Yosef goes over to his brother, yeah, Benjamin. And he takes out this ancient Egyptian book. And he says, do me a favor. He says, you know the wisdom in this book? So, um, Benjamin says, you know, it's an ancient wisdom that, that, and he's like, you know, yeah, our father taught us this wisdom. And this, this book, with it, you will be able to find anything you need in the entire world. It was some sort of, I don't know, it was magical, what it, what it was with, uh, with astrology. And he goes and he says, yeah, we, we know, we, we, so he says, do me a favor. Your brothers are coming here, they're looking for your, they're looking for your, uh, your brother Yosef. Search in the book where Yosef is. So Benjamin says, fine, not a problem. He starts flipping through the pages and he starts, uh, you know, doing the, all the, the process to find where he is. And he does it once and he's like, something's wrong. He touches, closes it up, turns, opens up again. He does the whole thing again, again. And he keeps, a, so Yosef goes over to him and he says, what's going on over here? Why do you keep on starting over? And Benjamin says, I, I don't know, there's some, you know, it's telling me that my brother is sitting right next to me, but it's only me and you over here, so I, it must be wrong. At that point in time, um, Yosef goes over to Benjamin and says, it is I, I am your brother, I am Yosef. And he goes and he reveals himself to him. And he says, don't tell your brothers that, I'm going to reveal myself to them soon. That's a good question. I had that question also. I don't know. So, he goes, um, Yaakov Avinu, Yaakov, he goes and he comes down to Egypt. You would think, you'd be, you know, like one of the first conversations would be like, you know, catching up. So where were you the past 22 years, my dear son? He's like, you know, what happened? And you would think that Yosef said, listen, you know what, I, you know, I, nothing. Yaakov never knew that he is, his, his own children sold another, uh, one of his other children. 
What happened was, and how do we know this? If you look in, in Bereshit, in Genesis chapter 50, it says that, you know, when, when, uh, when Yosef's brother saw that Yaakov was dying, that he passed away, so they went over and they sent messengers to Yosef, and they said, listen, your father, he was on his deathbed, and he said, please forgive my brother, please forgive, you know, my sons for what they did to you, because they were nervous, and now, Yosef wasn't punishing them because Yaakov was still alive, he didn't want to, you know, get any revenge, but now, that, Yosef, that Yaakov is dead, now it's payback time. So they said, listen, you know, our father said, don't do anything to us. He's like asking you, please forgive us. Which means this, the, the Nachman, uh, Rambam, Nachmanides brings down at, uh, at, from this story, which means this, is that until this point in time, it's a proof that Yaakov never knew that his brother sold Yosef. Because if he knew, he would have told them straight up. He would have told Yosef, hey buddy, you know, my, my dear son, please forgive them. But he never, he never said anything because he never knew. And in fact, it says in, the, in Bereshit, in chapter 48, it says, uh, they quote to Yosef, it says, behold, your father is very ill. Why they have to go send him? Because Yosef did not go visit his father so much because he didn't want to have someone too much a long time that he would tell him, he says, what happened to you? He didn't want it to come out because if he would ask him, he would have to tell him. So Yosef kept his distance from his own father just so he won't have to go and, and tattle on his, on his own brothers that they sold him. This was, this was Yosef. This was Yosef that no matter what happened to him, he not only did he hold strong fast, he did not bend one iota and did not blame anybody else and realize that everything is coming uh, directly um, from, from God. So, the question I want to deal with, and I need probably about 15 minutes, so again, if anybody needs to leave, um, I don't take it personally. So, the, um, uh, there, there's a midrash that, that I want to bring out. Where did he get this power from? This is a really important part. How did Yosef get this power? It's unbelievable. Where, where did he get this power to do it from? And the answer is, he got it from his mother. And let's, let's look at what Rachel. Rachel, so, you know, there's a midrash that says, Rav Shulba Nachman said, that uh, when the Bet Hamikdash was being destroyed, and the children, the, the Jews were dying, and it was it was going through for, through through troubles and problems, and uh, so Avraham goes over to to God and says, you know, save your children. God says, I can't. I'm in the I'm in this I'm in the cheer of din. I'm in the cheer of judgment. I can't move. So Yitzchak he says, I was willing to sacrifice myself. Save your children. God says, I can't. I'm in this. I'm in the cheer of judgment. Yaakov comes, I was with Esav, I was with Lavan, please for, you know, I brought the 12 tribes, nothing doing. Moshe Rabbeinu comes, people come after a time and time again, nothing doing. Suddenly Rachel, Rachel Imenu comes, and she goes and she says, you know, when I was supposed to go and get married to, I was supposed to get married to, to Yaakov, Rachel says. And, you know, my father, Lavan, tricked my, my, my husband and he said, you know what? No, uh, Leah is going to get married. And you know what? I knew that that's what's going to happen. So what I did was, is I gave signs to Yaakov. So there's no hanky-pinky going around. There's no tricks. So she goes on and she says, um, you know, then the time came where it was the wedding night. And I saw that Leah was going to go up there. And if she goes up there and she doesn't know the codes, she's going to be embarrassed in front of everybody, in front of the entire wedding. And she says, I, I can't. I can't do that to my to my own sister. And she says, I went and I gave her my codes, my secret codes to let me know that it's me and it's not anybody else to Leah so that she could tell to, to Yaakov. So she goes on and she says, uh, and, and, and it, first of all, it continues. And it says that many years later, well, I want to give you a little idea of who Rachel Imenu really was. And why is it called Rachel Imenu, by the way? It's not Leah Imenu. We call Rachel Imenu. So, uh, not Imenu, even though they're all Ayimaot, but with the title, Mama Rachel, the title Rachel Imenu is specifically titled to, to Rachel. So, many years later, um, you know, Leah is having children, Rachel is still not pregnant. And meanwhile, the Ruven finds in the field something called Dudaim. Dudaim is, is a 
think of it as a fertility magic drug that if you take it, you'll become, uh, you'll have, a, you'll get uh, pregnant. And Uven goes, he's going to bring it to his mother Leah to, you know, have the duodenum because she didn't have a child in, in some time at this point. So Rachel sees it and she goes over to Leah and says, "Please, you know, can I have the duodenum? So uh, you know, I don't have any children yet. You have some children." So Leah goes over to Rachel and she goes and she says, "You stole my husband. Now you want to steal also my my duodenum." So Rachel says, no, listen, you know what, you know, at that point in time, Yaakov would have a, a different time, you know, different set times of who he was going to be with which wife. At that point in time, that night was supposed to be uh, um, Rachel's turn. He says, listen, you give me the Dudaim, I'll let you have Yaakov tonight. I made a, uh, you know, business deal. So they asked that, fine. And they switched it. But there's one point that I want to, I want to go back to that I said was, Leah told Rachel, you stole my husband. Nobody... If, what she could have said is like, I stole your husband. Oh, really? I stole your husband. He was my husband, Rachel could have said. He was my husband. I gave him to you so you don't get embarrassed. And I, and Rachel never mentioned that. Never mentioned that. Leah never knew in her entire life that Yaakov was really supposed to marry Rachel. She thought her entire life, Yaakov was supposed to marry to her. You know, there's different proofs that we have. We don't have the time to go into that. But Leah thought that Yaakov was mine. Was mine all along. And Rachel came out and, and stole my husband. And Rachel, if she would have wanted to, she could have spilled out the beans right away. She says, no, he worked for me for seven years, sister. Right? He was, belonged to me. And I let you have him. But she didn't. She didn't say anything. And she goes over to, to, to God and says, I gave over my sister, my own flesh and blood to my husband. And I never broke it to her. He says, please, for my sake. Have, have mercy on your children. Your children went and they served the different, you know, served the Avodah Zarah, just like I didn't get, get jealous of my sister. Please don't get jealous when they're serving somebody else. It says in the Midrash, HaKadosh Baruch got up and went from the cheer, the judgment to the cheer of mercy, to the din of the Achimim. He says, for you, that is right. I have to do that because that's how you lived your life. So we look, we look at, uh, at, at, you know, Rachel. Rachel lived her entire life, never rubbing it in her sister's face. Never, she was willing to give up everything just so that her sister doesn't get embarrassed. She never told her sister, hey, by the way, he's my husband. You know where Yosef got the, the, the ability, the strength, to never say to his brothers, to his father, to, to Benjamin and to Yaakov, hey, by the way, you know how I got here? He got it from his mother. Because there's something called spiritual DNA. So it's something that Rabbi Zahari Walsing brings out, and I hold very strongly of it. I think it's an, an amazing idea. When you when you fix yourself in a spiritual sense, that goes. It's like you know when you have a you have physical DNA, which means as you have a blue eyes, there's a certain you know you know percentage that your children will have blue eyes, black hair, well, yada yada yada. You look very similar. There's also something called spiritual DNA. You work on yourself spiritually, that goes on to your children as well. Rachel worked on her spiritually, and that went on to Yosef, and that went on to Yosef, and that's what he was able to uh, you know to able to to uh, to get what he, what he was able to get. I want to bring one last point. We did. We focused a lot about Emunah. I want to bring the last. Uh, the last point is uh, is is the last five minutes. I want to bring on the Musar that we could learn from from Yosef as well. So Yosef, it says uh, this is uh, Rabbi Fran brings upon this, and Rabbi Fran in the parsha. He says uh, you know the brothers uh, came and and they came over to Yosef, and Yosef said you know three words, and that just shattered their entire world. He what was the three words that he said? He says. Ani Yosef, or it's in English, it's I am Yosef, really in Hebrew it's two words. But he says, I am Yosef, and this is Odavichai, my father's still alive. That was the serious rebuke that anybody could have. And the Midrash says, which means is, woe is to us on the day of judgment. What's going to happen after 120? We're going to come in front of God, and God's going to say those same three letters. He says, I am God. And then everything in life makes perfect sense. You know why this happened? You know why this happened? Because I am God, and I orchestrated everything. Think about it, what happened in Yosef's, uh, in Yosef, in, for the brothers. The brothers sold Yosef. They thought they did the right thing. You look at it, they go, and they, they didn't, for 22 years, their father was suffering, inconsolable. They still thought they were doing the right thing. They went and they saw the Shekhinah left. 
They still thought they did the right thing by selling Yosef. They suffered through a famine. Still, they thought they did the right thing. They don't know what's going on over here. What's over there? They went down to Egypt and they had to go, you know, buy food. And then they were, they were subjugated to being, you know, uh, um, being accused of being spies. Still thought they did the right thing. They went, they, they were, their lives was in danger. They went and they was, they found that the, you know, there was a, the, the, the cup of the king was it found inside the, one of the sacks, I mean sack. They still thought that they were right. They, and they were trying, their troubles and tribulations were happening to them. They were like, what's going on? Why is this, ha- why is this happening? And they couldn't realize it. And then, the three words that came out from Yosef's mouth made everything just so clear. Because what happened was, is that they thought they were right all along. And then suddenly, Yosef comes over to them and he says, I am Yosef. And then suddenly, everything is clear. So, you know what? We're having so much suffering. We did something wrong the whole time. Yosef was right all along. And that was the biggest rebuke is that's going to happen after after 120, we're going to come to God, and God's going to say, hey, guys, I am God. What happened? What was, where's all the signs? And then every, and then that's going to be the biggest rebuke. Now, the other question I want to deal with is, what happened to, um, you know, Yaakov? He, uh, how is it possible that the brothers didn't recognize uh, Yosef? They looked exactly the same. Now, you guys heard this is from the, he looked exactly the same as Yosef and Yaakov looked exactly alike. How is it possible they couldn't recognize it? And the answer is very simple. The answer is very simple, is that, if you don't, if you're not looking for the truth, and if you're not, if you don't believe that you did, if the truth smacks you in your face, it's not gonna change. You're not gonna see it. You're not gonna see it. They could, they did not think at any point in time that Yosef was sitting in front of them. There's no way. They looked, you know where they looked at him? They looked at him in the prostitution houses. That's where they thought he would be. They was like, there's no way that he's gonna be second to the command of the king. It's not possible. And Yosef was sitting there, looking exactly like their father, and they never able, they were never able to put the two and two together. And this is something, the final point that I want to bring out with. There is, there's so many times that God sends us, sends us little reminders. Little reminders, hey, you know, God forbid something happens. Wake up! Hey, you know, God's a reminder, do tshuva, do this. And again, sometimes people get reminder, after reminder, after reminder, and we're like those people that just don't get it. Like, it, the answer is right in front of your nose. God send you again. If you have a problem, what does the Gemara says? If someone sees that he has uh, suffering com- coming upon him, let him look inside. There's a reason why it's coming to you. There's not, God doesn't dish out suffering for just no reason. There's a reason. It's a wake-up call. Time to wake up. And this is something that, that the, you know, that, that I, I, I spoke about in Shabbat very strongly, and I would like to you know, speak about it also over here. The, you know how many people we lost in our community? In the past, in the past two years. And then God, we're not God and we don't know the reason for it. But at the same point in time, I want to share with you something, you know, when, when, um, about six years ago, my best friend passed away in a car accident. So, um, at that point in time, someone came over to me and, and explained to me, he says, you know, that even though whatever happens to the person, you know, it's his time and yada yada, but everybody who was affected by that, is a reason why they were affected by it, which means is you had part of that, you're supposed to get that suffering that you're supposed to have. And there's a reason for it. And what the reason is, is God sending you a sign to wake up. And I remember thinking, you know, after, after going to the funeral and burying my, you know, my best friend, I'm like thinking, I'm like, you know what? God, I don't need any more signs. I get the point. And I'm looking and I'm like, this, you know, this community we had every few months burying another, another, another kid, another kid. And the question is, when are you going to wake up? When are we going to wake up? When are we going to start realizing that we have to do something? It's not going to... And people, what does it happen? They start a shiur once a week. Once a week of learning Torah is not enough. You need to learn every single day. And if you're not learning every single day, you're falling. What happened to Shabbat? What's going to... You know, how many people need to die to people wake up? I, you know, I'm sorry that I'm so, uh, you know, forward. But it's got to be said already. People are not waking up. The same cycle. We're stuck in the same thing. Where's Shabbat? Where's kosher? Where's learning Torah? A woman, where's the tzniyut? You know where the problem is? in the generation nowadays with Sniut, 
Short skirts are not a problem. Pants are not a problem to many people. Where is it new? How many wake-up calls do we need? How many wake-up calls do we need to finally go, God, I get it. I get it. I'll wake up. And that's what, you know, that, that's what's going to happen after 120. God's going to say, I am God. Everything is going to make so much sense. And the last thing that I want to, I want to bring about is, is the fact that something I like to call world goggles. There are many people that they think certain things and they think it doesn't affect them. You know how many times people told me, like, don't worry about it. I could watch certain things. It doesn't affect me. I'm like, you're an idiot, you're a fool, and you're probably sick in the head if that doesn't affect you. What are you telling me if you're watching something that's not going to affect you? Of course, if it doesn't affect you, you have to go into psychiatric evaluation. Why is it not affecting you? Wait, are you so de- desensitized to it? That's a very big problem. That means you're a very big pervert. And why is it, why is it not? And people, you know what it is? If you're able, if you're watching something and you're thinking, okay, it doesn't affect me, then guess what? You're wearing world goggles. If you're thinking that you'll be able to listen to music and this dirty music and it's not going to affect you, Guess what? You're listening. You're, you just, I got that world. You know, world goggles like to compare to beer goggles. Beer goggles is if you're sitting in a bar and you're chugging beers, the woman in front of you just gets prettier and prettier after every time, right? It's basically just, you know, flaw, you know, making everything, you know, not, not make sense. World goggles is the same idea in, the, in, in this, in this thing. People could come and tell me, I could go to bars and clubs. It doesn't bother me. I don't do it. I go for the music, the trend. I'm like, first of all, that's, you gotta be crazy. Cause the music that they do in the club is literally like, it's like, it's like somebody is on a keyboard and he's just having a seizure on it. And that's, uh, you know, and it's so loud. And then you get, uh, that's not enough. Let me blind you with some lights, you know, so that, the, uh, you know, I can do that. And if that's not enough, let it smell of all the BO and you have some glow sticks that, you know, to maybe show you the way to the bathroom or to, to safety and, and uh, the exit. And people think, oh, it's okay. I'm not, I'm not there to pick up any girls you're wearing beer goggles if you don't think that affects you it affects you big time if you you know people go and they're, they're doing sins with women and they're they're wasting seed and they don't realize that the problem with new the problem with stealing money and we're wondering why we have so many problems what's going on god why am i having so wake up wake up and look around and you realize that if god's sending you something there's a reason for it and if there is a reason for it say god i get the point I get the point. No more. I don't need any more. There's so many things that are happening in our community and our, you know, you know, Balkshem, it's a, such a large community, but there's so many things again and again. And now I'm asking, please let us not have any more tragedies. Let us not have any more of these things. Let us tell God we get the point. And Bezat Hashem, let us get this, this lesson that we learned from Yosef, that when God's going to come and God's going to say, I need Yosef, uh, when we're going to come up to 120 and God's going to say, I am, guess what guys? I am God. And we'll be like, I know, because that's the way I live my life, and that's the way Yosef lived your life. And if you live that life, you will live an unbelievable, successful life. Just look at the story of Yosef. Never questioning, always having the emunah, always having the faith, and it's going straight on full force. And you know what? He became the most successful. And may we all become the most successful that we can be. You've just experienced another Torah class, brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.